Good morning. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you that through Jesus Christ, your blessing, grace, mercy, and peace are upon us. That through Jesus Christ, you are for us. You did not spare your only son, but gave him up for us all. And you will bring us all the way home to everlasting glory. Father, we thank you for the gift of your holy scripture that you've given to us for our good and for our growth in Christ. And Father, I pray that you would be with us now as we ponder our church family in light of the scriptures, and I pray that you would strengthen us by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said last year at this time, this is a bit of a, an, an atypical sermon. Uh, one, of, one of my favorite authors is a pastor who uh, his, his regular practice at the beginning of each year is to deliver a state of the church address to, to his congregation. And I thought, I like that idea. I, I think that's a, that's a good thing for a pastor to do. Ordinarily, you know, we're opening up to a specific passage and walking through it, and next week we'll be back in the, in the book of Genesis. But I think it's, it's valuable from time to time for a pastor to kind of take a step back and to survey uh, the circumstances of congregational life <clears throat> in light of the scriptures and give, give encouragement. And so this, this uh, message is going to unfold in three parts. First, I want to call attention to the some of the evidences of God's grace in our midst. And then second, I want to talk about one big challenge facing the church in America. And then finally, I want to give scriptural counsel for faithfully navigating that challenge. And so let's begin with the, the evidences or the indications of God's gracious work in our church family. When Paul wrote his letters to the churches, he would often, near the beginning of the letter, recount certain blessings that he observed in the life of the congregation. For example, in his first letter to the Thessalonians, Paul said in verses 2 and 3, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfast of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. These Thessalonian believers had that faith which works, that love which labors, that hope which steadies. Paul did not praise them as if they were the ultimate source of their wonderful qualities, but instead Paul's response to their good fruit is thanksgiving to God, which means that God is the ultimate cause and cultivator of whatever good fruit is produced in and through his people. Therefore, we give thanks to God. What about South Paris Baptist Church? What good things is the Lord producing in our midst? I could speak at length in answer to that question, but 
Let us be content with a number of selective snapshots. After the Christmas Eve service, a young man came up to me with a great doctrinal question that had been prompted by the message. What is, what is the decisive cause of our salvation? That's, that's my summary of his question. A few days ago, we met for lunch, and I had the opportunity to address his question, as well as a second question that he brought to the table. And our time together included visits to the book of, the book of Job, the Gospel of John, Romans chapter 9, and Hebrews chapter 12. A day earlier, I had lunch with another young man, and the bulk of that conversation revolved around how to define love biblically. The letter of 1 John, Romans 13, and Hebrews 13 framed our discussion. A day before that, I met with another young man, and that conversation focused on the will of God. 1 Thessalonians chapters 4 and 5, 1 Peter 2, and Daniel chapter 5 gave us much to think about. It is a sign of health in our community that there are young men among us who like the idea of meeting with the pastor in order to discuss the things of God. These these young men have not been tricked into meeting with me in order to do penance for past demerits, unless there are conversations that they're having with their parents that I don't know anything about. But as far as I can tell, they want to meet, and what they get out of it is a lot of Bible. And if they didn't want to get Bible out of it, I don't know why they would meet with me, because the only thing I have to offer them is Bible and my, and my attempt to live it out and to share that with them. That's all I got. These young men, by the way, are really young, not the way that someone might refer to me as a young man. <laughs> I'm old compared to them. Uh, one, of, one of these guys is in his early 20s, and the other two are, are, are teens. It is a sign of health in our community, not only that, that there are young men who are pursuing Bible, but also young men who are pursuing marriage. Another young man, Andy, graduated from high school last spring, blinked, and got married to Lydia. Another young man, Jeremy, just completed high school, half blinked, and got engaged to Grace. When people give up their idols and start getting a biblical mind, they stop wasting their time on a thousand trivialities. They get married and build households. Now, lest anyone get the wrong impression, I am not suggesting that every young man should get married immediately after high school. I have not forgotten that I did not get married until I was 33. We don't live cookie-cutter lives and One person's journey differs from another person's journey for numerous reasons. But what I am saying is that in a biblically healthy church, marriage and family will be held in high regard, and there will be increasingly, increasingly, there will be young men who step up and assume the responsibility of being a husband and father in early adulthood, and that is something to celebrate. Now, if you are listening listening carefully I just said what young men will be apt to do in a biblically healthy church. What I didn't mention is that young men and young women, there's a number of young women here also who have a heart for the Lord. These young men and young women who hunger for the Word and who want to offer themselves as living sacrifices to the Lord ordinarily come from strong families with faithful Christian parents. Not perfect parents, but 
faithful ones. And at South Paris Baptist Church, we do not believe in pursuing a healthy congregation at the expense of healthy families. We do not believe in pursuing a healthy congregation in lieu of healthy families. Instead, we, be- we believe that we ought to pursue a healthy congregation that is made up of strong families. The family unit is the foundational vehicle for Christian discipleship. The fruit that we see among our young people is in large measure the fruit of parental diligence to raise children in the ways of the Lord. Over time, this diligence generates an abundance of fruit in subsequent generations, which we just sang about. And one way that this beautiful fruit is, is displayed is in an increasingly intergenerational congregation that spans three or four or even five generations. If the Lord wills, I would be happy to be here long enough, say into the 2050s, in order to see this strong intergenerational family vision really get worked out over the course of many years. So our strategy for building a healthy church is not to pull you away from your family, exhaust you, exasperate your family that we pulled you away from, and then insist that you all put on a nice plastic smile so that we can kid ourselves into thinking that we're doing well. I have zero interest in any kind of congregational dynamic or ministry that leaves families dry. We want your family life to be vibrant, rich in grace, learning the Bible, growing in love, serving together, and then linking up with other like-minded families, and thus the experience of the congregation is that we are an extended family on mission, pursuing God together. Now, in speaking like this, I know that what I, what I said might have struck a sorrowful note in someone, perhaps in a widow or in a widower, or in a single person who aspires to marriage, or in a young person who comes from a stressful home environment. These sorrows and heartaches are real, And so I want to remind all of us that we have a responsibility to fold such people into our lives, to invite them to be part of our family and to be family to them. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, 1 Peter 4.9. And that must certainly be applied in the direction of brokenhearted folks who ache for meaningful relationships. In addition to the examples already given, there there are other contexts in which I discern healthy engagement with God's Word. Several months ago, a man told me that he was spiritually leveled by what we were discussing in Sunday school class. And that spiritual leveling that took place, uh, the Lord worked through that to produce several month journey of repentance and renewal that continues up to the present time. That's the, that's the work of God. It's not the work of any man. In, uh, in, in Monday school class, two different people at different times, one man and one woman, have told me with great appreciation that they've never received instruction like this before. And they welcome, they welcome it. And the interesting thing is, there's no secret regarding the instruction. We open up the Bible, pay careful attention to what the text says, 
And then we dialogue about what it means and how it applies to our lives. What we do there ought to just be normal operating procedure in the ministry of the church. One of the regular participants in Monday School is Trish DeBrule, who was the wife of Pete, who preached last Sunday. Trish is a diligent student of Scripture, and a number of months ago, she started a, a, a Thursday morning Bible study for ladies, and there's a number of ladies in our church who on Thursday morning gather together with Trish to study the Bible, and there's, and there's a number of other ladies who gather on Wednesday morning to study the Bible with, with, with Brenda. And in addition to that, we have, of course, we have Children's Sunday School and Jim and Goldie's midweek group and the youth and young adult groups. Although we have our share of imperfections as a church family, the great strength of South Paris Baptist Church is a principled commitment to make God's Word central to our entire ministry. Without God's life-giving Word defining and shaping all that we are, all Programming and strategizing is a complete waste of time. Attentiveness to Scripture is not something that we have achieved because of our own wisdom and strength, but it is a gracious stewardship and empowerment that we have received from the Lord. Therefore, give thanks to God. The final thing I'd like to mention as an evidence of God's gracious work in our midst is just the number of people involved in serving and serving together in the various ministries of the church. I'm not going to mention them all, but what a blessing to see so many people working together to put together an in-house vacation Bible school last summer. What a blessing to see so many people working together to get the last Saturday supper ministry launched last year. John, John Washburn stepped up to serve as the interim youth director, and we started a Young adult group and the McGarveys and Richardsons stepped up to provide leadership. In addition to our official ministries, there's all kinds of vital informal ministries that, that typically nobody knows about. Ministries of prayer, ministries of encouragement, ministries of hospitality, ministries of making meals for, for people and serving all kinds of practical needs. And these mostly invisible ministries are essential to a healthy church. I may have said this before, but it's worth saying again. South Paris Baptist Church is richly blessed to not be the kind of church where 20% of the people do 80% of the work. It's not like that here. It's a lot of people laboring together to share the load. And it certainly makes it a lot very joyful to be laboring together. Scripture says... There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. 1 Corinthians 12, 4-6. The body of believers is its members who make up the body. And God arranges the members of the body, each one of them, as He chooses. 1 Corinthians 12, 18. Therefore, give thanks to God for the good works the works of service and labors of love that you see manifest in and through our church family. The second part of this message is to reflect on a big challenge facing our church, and not only our church, but in general facing Christ's church in America. I'm not suggesting that this is the only challenge that we face or even that it's the biggest challenge that we face. It's, it's, a, it's enough 
for me to say that it is a big challenge and we must get our biblical thinking caps on. The challenge I have in mind is that we have entered into a morally inverted age as a society. To invert something is to put it upside down. To invert morality is to call what is morally good immoral and to call what is immoral morally good. To invert righteousness is to regard true righteousness as unjust and to regard unrighteousness as true and right. To invert wisdom is to look upon actual wisdom and describe it as crazy and to look upon actual insanity and to describe it as sensible and enlightened. Diction, uh, when this happens, everything is turned upside down. Decency is turned inside out. The light of truth is exchanged for a legion of lies. Dictionaries are rewritten. Words are redefined, and everyone is supposed to play along. Evidence doesn't matter. Logic doesn't matter. Careful inquiry doesn't matter. Objective reality doesn't matter. Truth is out, and what's in is to cater to people's feelings. Common sense is out, and what's in is big government and big media keeping everyone safe from the old morality. The old liberties are out, and sexual liberty is in. Repro uh, responsible freedoms are out, and reproductive freedom is in. Natural marriage is out, and unnatural fancies are in. All this breaks down the family. It leaves a train wreck of guilt, frustration, loneliness, and mental illness, and makes more and more people dependent on a bloated central government. When people exchange true liberty for sexual license, the resultant slavery is well-deserved. To put all this another way, we have entered into the type of society that is described by the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, when he wrote, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And beside the woe of Isaiah 5.20, let me place the distressing assessment of Isaiah 59 verses 14 and 15, which says, Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. In such a society, when you look into the heart of that society, what you see is evil, darkness, bitterness, injustice, unrighteousness, and deceit. But here's the tricky part. The people who govern and support such a society do not confess that their wickedness is wicked. They call evil good. They call darkness light. They call bitterness sweet. They call injustice social justice. They call unrighteousness equality. They call deceit truth. With a straight face, they tell you that religion doesn't belong in the public square, but then they enforce their own ideological belief system with religious-like zeal. With a straight face, they tell you that they follow the science, but then they abandon the science when it comes to male and female. With a straight face, they tell you that they are decidedly pro-women, but then they advocate policies that devalue women and allow mentally disturbed males into spaces typically reserved for actual women. With, with a straight face, they tell you that they embrace diversity, but then they show remarkable intolerance toward opposing viewpoints, even to the point of censorship. A very recent example, which you may have heard about, illustrates 
the moral inversion of our times. The Christian Kirk Cameron wrote a children's book entitled, As You Grow. The description of the book includes these two sentences. This fun story with brilliant art teaches the biblical truths of the fruit of the Spirit. Follow Sky Tree's journey from a small acorn to a mighty tree that provides shade, sustenance, and lodging. The publisher of the book sought opportunities to have the author, Kirk Cameron, read his book in public libraries throughout the nation. Now, from the vantage point of the 18th century, where it was recognized that public morality undergirded by religion was vital to a healthy republic, one might assume that the public reading of Cameron's book would be a refreshing wellspring of moral sanity in our depraved age, but not in a morally inverse society. The book re reading request was, was typically rejected by public libraries across the nation. They much prefer serpentine story hours that degrade public morals. Of course, they consider the degradation of public morals to be progress. Bitter is the new sweet. We live in a society that has abandoned its Christian heritage and has turned almost everything upside down. Wherever you look, politics, government, bureaucracy, education, media, business, entertainment, you will find powerful people and significant momentum to underwrite the new morality with propaganda, distortion, and legal pressure. I went into these matters at some length in my three-part It's Time to Get Real series of midweek thoughts last year, and it's not my intent to restate all those things at this moment. At this point, though, I want to make a clarification that might help you to understand what I'm talking about. When I say that we have entered a morally inverse age in our society, someone might respond by saying that this sinful world has always been morally inverse. The sinful world has always been contrary to and totally incompatible with the values of God's kingdom. 1 John 2.16 says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And 1 John 5.19 says, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we might add in a phrase from Ecclesiastes, There's nothing new under the sun. Yes. The sinful world system has always been alienated from God and at its root has always been morally inverse, exchanging the truth of God for a lie, Romans chapter 1. But this doesn't mean that every society is as corrupt as it could be or is as corrupt as it was four generations ago or is as corrupt as some other society in some other part of the world. Because of God's common grace to all mankind and because sinful people are still affected by the vestiges of being created in the image of God. And because the demands of God's moral law are written on people's hearts, even unbelieving societies may reflect what is good and right and true in certain ways and to certain degrees. Furthermore, when the gospel enters into that society through faithful preaching and when that gospel takes root in people's hearts and faithful churches are established, then the church's salt and light influence goes to work in society and much positive change results. And if you consider the arc of Western civilization over the course of 2,000 years, the impact of God's common grace and the influence of the church and its teaching have been written large 
on the shape of Western society. While at the individual level, many people remained unconverted, our society as a whole understood the dignity of humankind, the basic meaning of manhood and womanhood, the holy institution of marriage, the blessing of children, the centrality of the family, the virtue of hard work, the welcome influence of the Christian church, the importance of the objectivity of truth, and the need for ordered liberty, that is, the need for people to exercise freedom responsibly within the framework of objective moral truth, and the corresponding good of limited government. The Creator has endowed human beings with unalienable rights, which means that these rights are pre-political. A just government recognizes and respects these rights. An unjust government believes that people have rights only at the pleasure of the government, and such a government assumes a godlike role to give and take away. Blessed be the name of the wealthy bureaucrats. What a heritage you had to have been born in 1950s America and not 1950s USSR. This is your heritage. You don't deserve this heritage, but it is the heritage that you had, and it is the heritage that our contemporary society is throwing away and has thrown away. They despise it. They despise any trace of divine authority. They despise any claim to objective moral truth. They despise any influence coming from an uncompromising Christian church. So we have entered a morally inverted age in which so many basic things have been turned upside down and the people who insist that things should be right side up are labeled as bigots. What has changed? God's standard hasn't changed. The church's teaching hasn't changed. The objective moral structures that God built into creation haven't changed. Society has changed, and now we're considered the bad guys. But we should take it in stride. Jesus said in John chapter 3, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. And then later in John chapter 15, Jesus said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John 15, verses 18 and 19. Even so, because we, we grew up in a society that had been extraordinarily touched by God's common grace and by Christian influence, we have to adjust our thinking and expectations to this morally inverted age in which we now live. It's my growing conviction that over the next few years, few things will be as important for us to think about as to learn to think biblically about how to order our lives as Christians in the midst of continued moral meltdown. Thus ends the second part of my message, and now to the third part. The last part of my message is to give you scriptural counsel for remaining faithful Christians in a post-Christian, irrational, morally insane society. How do we pursue faithfulness and godliness in a society that calls evil good and good evil? How shall we keep our heads on straight and keep making progress in our walk with the Lord? 
Well, let me share with you five nuggets of biblical wisdom. First, in a society that calls evil good and good evil, it is doubly important that you immerse yourself in the truth of God's Word so that you are able to differentiate true God, I'm sorry, differentiate true good from true evil. When society itself has been Christianized in many ways, uh, you can you can get away with being sloppy because society itself reflects some of the objective moral values that God built into the world. But when society is de-Christianized and gutted of moral wisdom, you will be swept away in the nonsense unless you are diligent to study and obey God's standard, which he has given us in the form of sacred scripture. You're you're either going to drift downstream with the progressive culture, or you're going to hold fast to Christ. And holding fast to Christ is not something that happens by accident, but requires deliberate faith. As things stand right now, our society and its institutions like to promote confusion, doubt, and skepticism on moral issues, thus paving the way for the sexual revolution to take root in people's hearts and minds. In such a world, it is doubly important that you know who God is, that you know how God has designed the world, that you know the objective moral principles by which God intends you to live, and that you know who you are and how you can be in meaningful fellowship with the Lord God. When the Lord God says in Isaiah chapter 1 that you should cease to do evil and learn to do good, the assumption is that evil is identifiable. And good is identifiable. These categories are not fluid. God has given us his standard. And if we meditate on his instruction, on his law day and night, Psalm 1-2, then we will not walk in the counsel of the wicked, Psalm 1-1. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God, Micah 6.8. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, Proverbs 8.13. The psalmist prays in Psalm 119, Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Don't make the mistake of consulting the Bible for how to be saved and then consulting the popular culture for how to live. That is a catastrophic error. Yes, search the scriptures for how to be saved, but in doing so you will discover that the God who saves his people teaches his people how to live. After the gospel has been proclaimed and converts have been baptized, Jesus tells us to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you, Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. Second, in a society that calls evil good and good evil, it is triply important to educate your children in the truth of God's Word. The reason I said doubly important in the previous point and triply important in the current point is because children are by nature undeveloped and vulnerable. There have been time periods in our country when parents could send their growing children out and about into society. And they would have had confidence 
that some basic standards of morality and decency would have been reinforced by that society. But the year 2023 does not fall into such a morally safe time period. Therefore, parents must not get sloppy and carefree and assume that the wider society will reinforce biblical moral teaching to your children. It won't. In fact, it will do just the opposite. It will undermine it. If children are taught that they are complex physical matter and not image bearers of God, if children are, are taught to enthrone subjective feelings and to disregard the objectivity of rational truth, if children are taught that life is an accident and not a purposeful gift from a holy God, if children are taught that marriage and family matters are socially constructed arrangements and not divinely arranged institutions with definitions and boundaries, if children are taught to manage appearances instead of to engage honestly with reality as it is, then don't be surprised when they live in accordance with how they have been taught. As parents, we must not utilize the Bible as a brief source of inspiring bursts of heavenly-mindedness and then leave their overall worldview and lifestyle development to the Harvard-approved experts. When Paul writes in his letter to the Ephesians, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, Ephesians 6.4. What he means, among other things, is that fathers must see to it that their children are brought up into the understanding and practice of everything else that Paul wrote to the Ephesians. Fathers and mothers alongside them must see to it that our children understand the preeminence of Christ and his gospel that brings salvation, Ephesians chapters 1 and 2. We must see to it that our children understand the glory that God has invested in the church and their responsibility to live as worthy members of the church, Ephesians 3.1 to 4.16. We must see to it that our children understand God's moral standard and what it means to live truthful, righteous, holy, pure, kind, loving, and dignified lives in every sphere of activity, Ephesians 4.17 to 6-9. And we must see to it that our children are equipped to wear and wield God's armor so that they overcome the devil's schemes, Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 5, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish but understand what the will of the Lord is. In this upside down society of ours, we will have to give our children more than 10 minutes of heavenly-mindedness if we are going to get them to understand what the will of the Lord is in the rough and tumble of everyday life. There is no quick-fix parenting. Slow down, connect with your kids, and clothe them with the wisdom of God. Third, in a society that calls evil good and good evil, we must expect to suffer at the hands of evildoers. If a society respected God's moral order, even if they didn't live up to it, then it wouldn't trouble us for delighting in and living according to God's moral order. But when a society has inverted the moral script, don't expect it to play nice. As I read in Isaiah 59, verse 15, he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. You want to be safe in a morally inverted world? Play along with evil. When the communists are calling the shots, departing from the evil communist regime puts your life and livelihood in grave danger. When the Islamists are calling the shots, 
departing from the evil Islamist regime puts your life and livelihood in grave danger. When the secular progressives are calling the shots, departing from the evil secular progressive agenda puts your life and livelihood in grave danger. Also, don't expect governments to play nice. God has placed upon the governing authorities an obligation to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. You can read about that in Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2. Governments ought to uphold God's moral order. That's what they ought to do, and we ought to call upon them to do it. But if they go down the path of rebellion, then you can expect unjust governments to punish those who do good and to praise those who do evil. The Apostle Peter envisions that there are times when Christians will suffer for righteousness' sake, 1 Peter 3.14, will suffer for doing good, 1 Peter 3.17, and will suffer as a Christian, 1 Peter 4.16. Peter recognizes that sometimes unbelievers will malign us because we do not join them in their flood of debauchery, 1 Peter 4.4, and their lawless idolatry, 1 Peter 4.3, that they're caught up in. 1 Peter 4, verses 3 and 4, expresses the basic scriptural teaching that we must not be willing participants in evil. Sometimes the cost of non-participation in evil means that you get called unsavory names. At other times, the cost of non-participation in evil might be the loss of job opportunities. The the last, uh, uh, one of my favorite Uh, preachers and teachers, John Piper, he has a podcast, Ask Pastor John. The last episode of 2022, someone wrote in and asked this question, "Can can I be a nurse for a gender reassignment surgery? The answer, of course, is, is, is no, and I'll, I'll put a link to the article, but in the sermon notes online, but, but my point here is simply to point out that in a society that calls evil good and good evil, you're going to be presented with numerous instances where governments and professions are promoting and performing evil. And you're going to have to have a steel-like resolve to say, it may well be the case that evil is going to come into the world, but by God's grace, this evil is not going to come into the world through me. And by the way, that's an adaptation from a quote from Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And so, there are times when you have to walk away. And you keep your heart true to the Lord, and you remember that you have an abiding possession stored up for you in heaven, which will never be taken away from you. The great reward is coming. In the meantime, expect to suffer. Fourth, in a society that calls evil good and good evil, be resolved to suffer graciously. This may be the most challenging part of this message. When evildoers threaten us or harm us, or when they attack us precisely because we are pursuing what is truly good in God's sight, we must not sink to their level. We must not play their game. We must not let their evil corrupt us. Peter instructs good servants who suffer under unjust masters to remember the example of the Lord Jesus. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, 1 Peter 2.23. And then in the next chapter, Peter counsels all believers to follow the Lord's example. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. 
1 Peter 3, 9. How can we have a disposition to bless in the face of evil? By having a tender heart and a humble mind, 1 Peter 3, 8, and by treasuring the Lord's instruction in the following verses, 1 Peter 3, 10 to 12. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Remarkably, in the context of 1 Peter 3.9, 1 Peter 3.10-12 indicates that doing good includes doing good to those who do evil against us which is exactly what the Lord told us to do. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 and 28. In order to get traction on that, we have to discover the mercy of God. Jesus said, the Most High is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Luke 6, 35. And then Jesus commanded us, be merciful even as your Father is merciful, Luke 6.36. So, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 12, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Suffer graciously, suffer humbly, suffer purposefully, suffer triumphantly. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, Romans 8.35, answer, no. In all these things, and all of those things that I just read, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, Romans 8.37, so suffer triumphantly. You're being brought into your inheritance Fifth, and finally, in a society that calls evil good and good evil, we ought to think of our church community as a community where God's goodness is embodied practically in and through our relationships with each other. Paul wrote to one church in Romans 15, verse 14. He said, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. By God's grace, true goodness takes up residence in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Further, we must recognize that God's message to the nations is not only the proclamation of Scripture, that's foundational and central, but also God intends to present to the world a vibrant church that has been transformed by the proclamation of Scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verses 5 and 8 says, See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules 
so righteous as all this law that I set before you today. It's not the proclamation only, but it's the proclamation come to be lived and embodied that functions as part of our testimony to the world. Although the predominant worldview of a society is morally upside down, we are to display true moral beauty by living right side up. We are to visibly demonstrate God's wisdom at work in and through ordinary people like us who have been set free by the gospel of God's grace to the end that we walk in humble obedience and thereby function as God's salt and light in the world. Brothers and sisters, I want to conclude with words from the Apostle Peter. Brothers and sisters, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 12. 9 to 12. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would continue to sanctify and unite this congregation in the riches of Scripture, the treasures of your grace, your calling upon our lives, which you empower us by the Holy Spirit to actually live out. Father, I pray that there would be such a, a strengthening in our church family in the year ahead that it would overflow into courageous truth telling, standing in truth actions, and that there would be a powerful testimony from this congregation to the people of the Oxford Hills, and that you would open their eyes and draw many more people into your family. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.